The news on flavored e-cigs talks a lot about the technology and teen use, but parents need to know more about the dangers of nicotine. So know this. One, nicotine is a toxic poison that can rewire teens' brains. Two, it can increase mood swings. Three, it can limit attention and learning. So even when it tastes like candy, nicotine is brain poison. Go to flavorshookkids.org for more. The Starlight Lounge presents An Evening with the Progressive Box. The moon, yeah. That's Hugo, tickling the ivories. He just saved by bundling home and auto with Progressive. Gonna finally buy a ring for that gal of yours, Hugo? Send her my condolences. Hi-oh! This next one's for you, too. There's a burglar in my heart. Thank you. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Discounts not available in all states or situations. Fellas, I'm ready to get up and do my thing. I want to get into it, man, you know. Like, I, you know I'm the man, don't you? Can I count it off? One, two, three, four... I'm schooled in the ways of runaway slaves. I'm brave, I'm unchained, I'm Frederick Douglass with a fame. This is the Church Politics Podcast with Michael Ware and Justin Gibney. Uh, Justin, how are you? I can't complain. Had, had a good week, ready to talk about some politics, brother. Yeah, man. I uh, I just got back. I was at a conference in uh, in Florida, so got my, Melissa was able to come. Got some beach time uh, with Melissa, and was just able to talk with some some great people about a hope in public life. And now I thought from Geico Motorcycle. It took 15 minutes to click on the banner ad entitled "You Won't Believe What These Child Stars Look Like Now." Be dissatisfied and kind of sad about how the child stars look. And now your computer is plagued by incessant pop-up ads. Oh, this can't be good. To add insult to injury, you could have used those 15 clickbait minutes to switch your motorcycle insurance to GEICO. GEICO. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more on motorcycle insurance. Life and so had a blast, but I have been uh, all throughout the conference. I was looking forward to getting back to D.C. to record this podcast with you. Uh, a, because I, as folks know, I love talking with you. But B, we have an amazing guest, a, a good That's friend right. of mine. Matt Lewis is our guest uh, today. Matt is a senior columnist at The Daily Beast, a CNN political commentator, and the author of a tremendous book that um, was, uh, you, you had the sense when it came out that it it was prescient. Uh, and, and Matt's really been uh, proven uh, to, to be prescient uh, in in what he saw happening in the party. Uh, he's the author of Too Dumb to Fail, How the GOP Betrayed the Reagan Revolution to Win, Re- to win Elections and How It Can Reclaim Its Conservative Roots. Matt, I'm, I'm so happy to have you on, brother. Hey, thank you. Great. It, it's Matt, I, uh, I think the way we just want to open it up is, just tell folks a little bit about um, about your book, why you wrote it. I know you released uh, uh, a new edition that sort of uh, brought it uh, into the Trump era. And so, you know, what, if anything, has changed about your view of the Republican Party? Um, and just just tell folks about about, uh, uh, you know, the, the backdrop of your book. 
Sure. So I would say around 2010, I was at AOL's Politics Daily, which is now defunct. And I started seeing things in the Republican Party that were bothering me. This is around the time that the Tea Party started. And you had um, people like Sarah Palin who were kind of out getting a little radical. You had candidates like Christine O'Donnell and Sharon Angle that were really, I think, dumbing down politics and playing this, this populist card that to me was very unconservative. And yeah. this was this was the first time that I had kind of strayed from, you know, conservative orthodoxy. So or so, well, they were the ones straying in my in my opinion. But this is the first time that I was like at odds with, you know, really at odds with like the Republican Party and the conservative movement. Yeah. Um, and I so I started writing about that in in 2010, and it led to this book. Uh, my book came out January of 2016, and it was basically a warning against, um this this brand of dumbed down conservatism that ulti- that it sort of manifests itself metastasized i would say into donald trump and mm. of course everybody <laughs> i think i was right about so much but the, the republican party promptly ignored everything i told them to do <laughs> and did the opposite and of course donald trump ended up winning and the only good thing about that is that it proved my title too dumb to fail was actually correct. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, Matt, I was reading one of your recent articles, uh, and I, I am going to get to the book. I haven't had a chance to go through it yet, but I'm going to grab that. Uh, you had a quote in one of your recent articles that said this. It said, Trump is a symptom, not a cause. Uh, in supporting Trump, GOP voters were recognizing reality, not endorsing it. Bad behavior has become good politics. Don't hate the player, hate the game. Can you flesh that out a little bit for us? Yeah. So as I was saying with my book, I I started writing the book in 2010, not writing the book, but writing the columns, uh, the critique of the of the right that turned into the book. And so long before Donald Trump ran for president, there were problems. There was a Republican Party that that was having an identity crisis, didn't know what it believed in, uh, was playing the victim card, was straying from things that I sort of brand of, of conservatism that I believe in. I voted by the just full disclosure, I voted for Marco Rubio in the Virginia primary. So that's kind of where I'm coming from. Yeah. Um having said that, so I think Donald Trump is is not a is not a good person. And um and and you know I, I didn't vote for him or I just didn't vote. It's the first time I didn't vote in a presidential election. I just couldn't in good conscience vote for this man. Um, mm. Aside from the fact that I have problems with some of his policies, I just don't think he has he's, – he's not really a man of character in my estimation. Um, having said that, it would be wrong to like attribute to him all these problems. He, they they right. preexisted him. I think he capitalized on them. I think he, he sort of seized this opportunity because of these problems. And I would say I, I, I do think that some of the people who voted for him voted for him because they realized that politics is broken and they'd given up hope on actually electing a good person and they were really settling yeah. for they were settling for him yeah that that's that's really that's really my sense matt i i think there's a, a lot of uh there there was a lot of complacency and sort of accommodation to uh uh 
the brokenness and the corruption that people saw in politics. And so they were willing to to accommodate themselves to uh, to someone like someone like Donald Trump. But man, you, you know, we you know, we're both in D.C. Uh, and, you know, we have a lot of uh, friends who have been in the Republican uh, Party for a long time. And there was just this sense that. One of the things that surprised them about Trump's rise was to learn that the Republican base maybe uh, isn't as attached to uh, the the principles that they thought were at the foundation of the party. That maybe sort of, uh, you know, maybe uh, 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 trade wasn't as important as uh, mm-hmm. as, as uh, some of the party leaders thought it uh, thought it was to their base. Maybe um having having candidates of a moral character and sort of family values candidates weren't as important as they thought it would be and so you know i think one of the problems facing the republican party as it tries to um i i think uh uh, i think as it sees the problems with with trump uh uh and modeling a party on trump's politics is um so much of the base likes it <laughs> that that you oh, really yeah. have a split base that it's not just sort of a fight among elites and an insurgent uh, uh that, that that the republican party is really really fractured so how how you reconcile i mean we saw this in virginia right where you had Corey stewart um who's you know a a uh, ethno nationalist um uh, who was uh, spent his campaign defending the Confederate memorials and con- Confederate flag. You had him take Ed Gillespie down to the wire. Um, and so just just talk to us a little bit about, um, you know, uh, how the Republican Party moves forward when its base is so, so fractured. Yeah, I mean, we get uh, we get the politicians we deserve, basically. <laughs> and, and that's. That's the problem. I mean, that's the problem with like democracy, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, John Adams and, and the founding fathers saw this uh, long ago that, that it, only a sort of a virtuous and moral people could, you know, could really handle this this republic, and and that's the scary part. Um, look, I would say a few things. One, I think that America in general is a product of a reality TV world. And the Republican Party is not immune to that. So um, mm. part of what we're seeing is uh, the manifestation, I think, of, of a culture that is coarsened, uh, where we have a reality TV president. I think that's part of it. I think there's also, and this goes back to the last question about, you know, don't hate the player, hate the game. I do think there's a sense, um, a, a, a sort of a victim a sense of a victim victimhood amongst conservatives that they believe that the media is out to get them. The media is biased and Hmm. that it takes to someone, uh, you have to fight fire with fire. Look, we saw what happened to Mitt Romney. Mitt Romney was a really decent man. I wasn't a huge Romney fan, but you know, remember he was trying to like help hire women (laughs) and he made this stupid line about binders full of women and it was really viciously used against him, um, you know, in this war on women. So I think there yeah. were some people who said, look, being a nice guy, being, you know, sort of being honorable, like that doesn't win. This is an existential Hillary Clinton. Uh, this is their in their mind is, mm. is an existential threat. 
we can't afford four more years. We've just had eight. We have to do what we have to do. But the last thing I'll say is that I completely agree that I was among those who, um, who, who didn't fully appreciate the fact that the vast majority of rank-and-file conservative voters don't really know that much or care that much about conservative philosophy. It's much more about tribalism um, to them, um, hmm. sort of who's on their team. And hmm. sadly, I think more and more, it, 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 it's, it's coming down a, a, a racial line. Um, yeah. I, you know, that's, that's the, uh, you know, and it's also like, you know, there's some pretty clear predictors. Like if you're, if you have a college degree, you're less likely to vote for, for Trump. Um, but I think the race, the race issue is, is, is one that has gotten worse. I mean, you know, I had, there's a chance we could have had, I'm not saying this would have changed everything overnight, but remember the Benetton ad, I mean. There yeah. was a chance that there was a chance there was a, a moment there where Mar you had Marco Rubio, the son of Cuban immigrants, was on a stage uh, with Tim Scott. I think he was at the time the only African American uh, senator. Nikki Haley, uh, the daughter of immigrants, um, yeah. and I think it was was it Mick Mulvaney or or, or somebody else. I mean, so it was really, uh, and they were all conservative, and that could yeah. have been the future. We went with Donald Trump instead. Let me ask you this, just to kind of go on, and I'm gonna hold on this to this for a little longer, so so bear with me. But 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 hating hating the players, uh, how do can we really avoid uh, blaming the players who who in some way create the game? Because at at some level, don't don't they have a responsibility to correct it? I mean, they're not just uh, you know mindless uh, folks just walking around reacting to their circumstances. They they have to think through these things. And the truth of the matter is, when it comes to principle. It can't be all about winning. So what I'm hearing is uh, there was an understanding in order to win, we had to support, you know, certain people had to support Trump or whatever. Yeah. But at some point, right, they have to be blamed for a lack of, of principle if those principles were violated and, and to correct things. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I definitely think that we need to hold our uh, elites responsible, you know, whether that's opinion leaders or party officials or politicians themselves and i think that they have a responsibility to do the right thing as they see it um i guess my point is that in our form of government um eventually we will get the politicians that we deserve because they're responding sure. to incentives they're responding to incentives they're trying to get reelected they want to give us what what we want and so I think that there's there's a it's a lagging indicator. Um, yeah. We're sort of li living off the borrowed capital of um, Christian civilization, um, and it's a lagging indicator. But I think that you know when when okay so when did <laughs> it was probably 1992 when um, the first American reality show started. Um, what was it uh, on MTV? I can't remember. Ritual campus. Real world. Real world. Yeah. <laughs> Real world. <laughs> and obviously we had Bill Clinton who had some elements of that, you know, sort of showmanship and all that. But, you know, I think that we've now gotten Donald Trump is, you know, it, it took it took a couple of decades, but but this is where we are. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Matt, you, you mentioned sort of uh, Nikki Haley, Tim Scott, Marco Rubio, 
you know, the future of the party. And, you know, I think that was a central message of Rubio's campaign. I think even, even, you know, and, you know, Jeb Bush had, you know, the central paradox of his campaign, which was, you know, he was trying to uh, convey a, a vision for the future of the Republican Party when he was, you know, distinctly, explicitly tied to its past. But uh, you, you had multiple candidates uh, trying to put forward a 21st century vision for the Republican Party. And they they all got they all got knocked down on. What do you think it it will take? Or do you think that Trump has set the party back, um, you know, a generation or, you know, uh, a decades um, on, you know, sort of pivoting towards the 21st century or to be to be more bleak about it? Um, you know, is Trump really showing the Republican Party the way to win in the 21st century? And it's just, you know, uh not not the not a positive path forward you know it is 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 rubio and uh jeb bush and arthur brooks are are they the ones who don't get the get the times well so i think it's um if we learned anything from trump's election it's that it's so hard to predict um what's going to happen but if i had to bet then I would bet that in the short term, at least, that the Trump, the Trumpists have won uh, the Republican Party. They've won the argument in the short term. I think in the long run, you know, um, it, it's it's a very bad move for the Republican Party for a variety of reasons, including demographic reasons. But in the short term, I think that um, that very clearly. The Marco Rubios and, and the Arthur Brookses, they are the ones who are out of touch with the Republican Party. And I think that's a sad commentary. I think it didn't have to be this way, but that is that is where we are. It's very clearly we are, um, to a certain extent, following uh, a, a European model. Mm. And my only hope is that uh, as has been the case through much of our history, we just get a, a, a small dose of what Europe is getting, um, and and that we don't actually become, um, you know, sort of indefinitely, you know, this this situation we, where we have this uh, white identity politics kind of right wing populist party yeah. that that takes over the party of Reagan. Right. I think I think another good question is. I mean, with this new Republican Party that you've described, you know, the question, the next question is going to be, you know, can they govern? So what do what can we expect or what do you expect them to be able to accomplish this term? Uh, we know that uh, my, you know, a lot of times uh, administrations pass their biggest legislation early on. This this administration has suffered. But what do you see them being able to do, if anything, uh, in this term? Yeah, Um Really, nothing much. Maybe they'll do some sort of pared down tax reform. I don't think they're going to get, um, you know, they're 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 certainly not going to get anything like Reagan was able to get in his big, you know, tax reform bill, um, yeah. which was like a landmark uh, accomplishment. But maybe they'll be able to pass some sort of tax reform. But yeah, it's it's very anemic. It's quite pathetic when you consider the ambition that they had to really repeal Obamacare, do tax 
platform, mm -hmm. do infrastructure, and do it all basically, you know, you, you need to do it very quickly uh, if you want to do it. So, but I would say I, I don't think, you know, this is actually part of, um, part of the argument for Trump, which is to say a normal politician, say like a Rubio or a Jeb Bush, like maybe they would have been able to build a coalition and, and have some, you know, bipartisan buy-in, or they would have just been more confident and they would have been able to pass things. But Trump basically just flips the script and, and says there's a new paradigm. All the um, he just all the assumptions are out the window, and he would basically say like, "Who cares that we didn't do anything? This is really this is about a culture war. This isn't about you know putting points on the board with legislation. This is about mm. making sure people say Merry Christmas, right. <laughs> you know. <laughs> and and to a certain degree, he's going to get away with it, at least with his his supporters. Hmm. But, Interesting. So, Matt, do you see that? Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, oh no, no. Fo follow up on that, Justin. Yeah, no, I think that's interesting. So we, we have a situation where nothing, you know, most people are predicting that nothing uh, will be done. Do you see the Democratic Party, as you know, me and uh, Brother Weir are Democrats. Do you see them as being in a position to capitalize on that? Um, Not fully. No, uh, <laughs> it's it's so it's so interesting you know, it's it's almost like the Cubs Nationals game the other night. You know, where like nobody deserves to win the Too game. Too soon, Matt. Too They're soon. Both... <laughs> 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 They're both trying to lose. I will say, even though, um, you know, even though I'm not a Trump supporter, and uh, I did, you know, I wrote the book that sort of predicted all of this, but I even I underestimated some of Trump's appeal um, in terms of winning the general election and all that. But I do have a pretty good sense, I think, of the Trump voter. You know, I'm I'm from a really rural area in Western Maryland. My dad was a prison guard for like 30 years. My mom lives in Pennsylvania and drove people to the polls hmm. um, for Donald Trump to win Pennsylvania. So, like, you know, I I feel like I have a pretty good understanding of of that base. The Democrats. I don't get to the same degree. All, all I can see is that they have not, you know, um, they have not fully capitalized. And, and clearly they have, they're wrestling with, you know, do they want to sort of stay in the mainstream with, with the, the Barack Obama, you know, vision, or do they want to go Bernie Sanders and, and Black Lives Matter? Not, not, this, not to conflate those two, but do they want to go in a more radical populist direction too or do they want to be the party of of barack obama and hillary clinton yeah well i i mean we talk we talk about that a lot on this show as you might imagine um and you know we can just look at the alabama race as an example where you know I, i'm i think roy roy moore is um uh a a candidate who um, will will be a a big embarrassment to the state of Alabama to Christians generally, um, and yet the Democrats have put up a candidate um, who has a great record, who has a great history. His 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 yeah, uh, with the, with the uh, bombings, right? Yeah, right, exactly. As a civil rights lawyer, I mean, there's a powerful story there. And um, as I've talked to people close to him, um, he 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 has a a compelling story. 
but but his message hasn't gotten out in a way that would attract Alabama voters. And the clearest example of that is when he was unprepared uh, to answer a question from Chuck Todd on whether he would support any restrictions on abortion, which uh, 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 he said he would not um, and, and has not uh, clarified his stance on that. If anything, he's doubled down. Um, and, and like you said, so Matt, maybe he and, was prepared. Well, well, so, you know, it's, it's interesting. I, I, I've, uh, talked with some, some folks close to his, close to his campaign. I think he's, he's in a bit of a, uh, situation where, uh, uh, if, if he backs down from the position he said on, uh, meet the press, then, uh, then it creates a new new news cycle, but that, you know that's that's his responsibility. That you know that but yeah. that, that ball's in his court now, and and he 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 said what he said. Um, uh, but uh, Matt, to your point, uh, that that's not the position that Barack Obama had in two thousand eight. That's not the position that successful Democrats have had in national elections or in races like in Pennsylvania or. Um, uh, or North Dakota, or um, or Arkansas, uh, where Democrats have been successful in 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 states that are purple or red, uh, and so it it does seem like the Democratic Party is struggling to decide whether um, uh, whether to sort of um, go go down the center and try and grab as many voters across the ideological spectrum as they could, or whether Trump is actually offering the party an opportunity. Um, to, to, to move to, uh, move to the left and try and consolidate some, um, some ideological gains. Um, and, and, you know, for the left, that, that's all fine and good, but you have to win. <laughs> uh, right. It, yeah. I mean, I'm, so I would say a couple of things here. Um, and you have to say like, when I give the Democrats, when I give liberals advice, I, I, I sincerely try to give them my sincere advice, but. It's fair to point out, you know, oh, he has a conflict of interest. He doesn't want him to win. <laughs> um, but no, but, but you know, in all seriousness, I think a couple things. Like one, one thing is they're wrestling with like, do we want to be as profane and crazy as Trump? Or do we want to be the opposite of Trump? And I would vote be the sane party, you know, be right. the opposite. Like maybe people are going to get sick, but you know, was it Tom Perez who wants to curse and um yeah so uh that's and right. then with the with with the life issue i mean that's pretty much a deal breaker for me yeah. um and so i, I would have potentially considered voting for a democrat i just can't on that issue like that's yeah. that's the that's the thing for me now you know i don't know how many matt lewises there are out there that they could pick up right you know like and probably if they did, they probably do the math and they say like, no, it, it's not worth it. But just anecdotally speaking, like if Hillary had been, I mean, there was a debate. One of the, you know, they only had, I think they did three debates. There yeah. was a debate where Hillary was asked something about, the, I was, I, you know, I, I hate to admit it. I was sort of leaning toward Hillary at this point. It's, hmm. it's crazy for me to admit that. And they asked her about the courts. Yeah. And she could have said, you know what? I'm going to fight whoever I appoint to the Supreme Court. They're going to interpret the Constitution. And I'm going to pick good judges that'll make you, pr you know, she could have had that answer. Right. No, she said, I'm going to pick people who are going to uphold, you know, 
Roe versus Wade, or, you know, and as, as soon yeah. as she said that, like, if I was doing one of those dial tests, I was like, okay, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I guess I'm voting for Trump now, you know? Yeah, right. Yeah, it's a, uh, it's a major problem. So, uh, so, you know, we've talked about what's your advice for principled conservatives who are, who are, who have said, you know, uh, the, the, the party isn't, um, at least the president, the white house isn't, you know, welcoming to them right now, but they're willing to stay and fight. How, how do they fight? What does the, what does the fight for the soul of the Republican party look like for, for principled conservatives? I think it's just basically um, a conservative movement in waiting, you know, you know, you need to be the change that you want to see, be ready when uh, during moments of, of, of crisis and opportunity, the baton is passed to people who are prepared. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I don't know how long this, you know, I don't know when the fever breaks. I don't know if the fever breaks. Political parties sometimes change. Political parties sometimes go away. But all I can do is just keep doing what I believe in, what is right, um, and, and stay true to my principles. And I think there are certainly people like like Ben Sass uh, and others who are doing that as well. The um, the danger that the politicians have is, you know, like Sass is not up for re-election this cycle, but, you know, if the political environment's the same, you know, you're going to have people like uh, Steve mm. Bannon come gunning yep. for him next, you know, when yep. he's up. And there's going to be a temptation for Sass to, to sort of change um, and... And there's a chance that someone like Sass could actually be, as amazing as it is, as it is such a bright star and a principled conservative, that he could he could be ousted, you know. And if if there's a weird, I mean, we saw what happened in Alabama. No, Nebraska is not Alabama. Yeah. Um, and the last thing I would say to shamelessly plug this book that's going on two years old now <laughs> is that there's been Roy Moore is the perfect example of the title too dumb to fail the fact that he won that election <laughs> should be he should now be on the cover that picture yeah. of him in the with, with the gun holding up a gun at a rally <laughs> yeah it, it feels that way <laughs> and, and so matt you, you've said that you think uh steve bannon thinks you have to destroy the party to save it um you know he, he just wants to kind of pull it apart what are the odds of his success uh, you know, how much momentum does he have? And do you think he'll be able to pull that off? I think there's a chance. I mean, it's easier to, it's easier to, to destroy things than it is to build things. And, sure. you know, and I think what Bannon, I think Bannon is not, he's certainly not a conservative, like in an Edmund Burke sense. I think he's much more of a radical. Um, I, I think, you know, he's influenced by, you know, I don't know if you've if if you if you guys have read like any of the uh, his name Joshua Green uh, the yeah, yeah book, um, but he's influenced by some some sort of weird cats. Uh, these these hmm. these these. Uh, I'm trying to think of the one guy's name. It escapes me right now. But philosophers from the 1930s, Italian, <laughs> you know, Italian fascists and. Um, and, and at one point, he he apparently referred to himself as a Leninist or something. Um, he wants to, he, he sees 
the Republican Party and the establishment as corrupt. And rather than trying to reform it or improve it, I think he wants to burn it down. And that is just that's a radical impulse that's patently unconservative. Um, so, you know, it, it's incredibly ironic that he is now considered, you know, a hardcore yeah. conservative. But, but, but does it come from nowhere? So I've heard a couple of times you brought up populism kind of purely as a pejorative. Um, and, and for me, I'm, I'm someone who far from being anywhere near what Bannon's doing or even Sanders, I do have some populist sympathies because I think it comes from somewhere. I think sometimes when the elite have really let down those who are in the low, you know, who are in uh the lower classes, for lack of a better term, they react by saying, no, you've done wrong. And so sometimes populism is just a way of holding the elite who have made mistakes, um, holding them responsible. Um, can you talk a little bit about that populism? And because it's a, it's a fairly broad term, right? There's a lot of ways that, to go about it. But isn't it somewhat a response to the failures of the elite? Is it always something completely negative and destructive? Yeah. Wow. This is a great topic. Um so first, I do think that there is a matter of semantics, you know, like right now we're right. talking a lot about nationalism and um, like I'm for nationalism if it means basically patriotism, <laughs> right. but there's a, another connotation in nationalism, which is much more, you know, like xenophobic and, and, and authoritarian, right? And I think the mm. same sort of principles that work with populism, you know, if populism means you know, sort of trusting average Americans um, over, you know, pointy-headed intellectuals, then that's a pretty good, um, that's not a bad thing necessarily. But populism quite often ends up um, actually being kind of a dark, kind of a dark thing where, um, you know, demagogues exploit the, um the masses, their their anger, and uh, sort of prey upon it, and they usually have to have like um, an enemy, somebody to blame, like immigrants, mm. Jews, you name it. Um, quite often, anti-Semitism eventually becomes part of most populist movements, I would say, to some degree. So it depends, you know, it really depends on like what you mean. I, I think. It's like one of those things where one person's pop, you know, one person's nationalisms and another person's populism. You know, it, it uh, different. You could say it and, and mean something, something very, um, very different about it. I think that what we're having here is an example of, yes, I think that, um, I think that our elites have have failed us for a variety of reasons. Um, I think that some of it is clearly their fault. So, you know, in a, in a representative democracy where, where you have, you know, elected leaders and you have opinion leaders, they really have a reciprocal responsibility. You know, the public kind of entrusts them to, to, to lead the public, but they also need to have the public's um, interest in mind. And if you look yeah. at all of the elite institutions that have failed us, whether it's the Catholic Church sex scandal, whether it is things like Enron or the too big to fail um, financial crisis, it's very clear that you have these elites who are just looking out for themselves. So 
yes, I think that that has invited and opened the door for demagogues like Trump to exploit that opportunity, um, which I think is really unfortunate. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that they have invited it. The other thing that's interesting is that Donald Trump talks about how the elites, the establishment is, you know, incompetent and, and effete and inept. And it sort of is true. But part of the problem is we keep taking power away from them. Hmm. <laughs> and so, like, yeah. look at the, you know, look at the Republican Party. Like, it used to be that political parties and political institutions had all sorts of statutory and moral authority. And they yeah. really could have prevented someone like Donald Trump. There would have been, you know, party bosses and smoke-filled back rooms that would have stopped uh, someone like Donald Trump. But what happens is when when party elites and establishment fail us, we punish them by taking away some of their power. So, for example, yeah. McCain-Feingold uh, really hurt the part the political party um, and their ability to sort of control things with money. We've also taken away the ability of, say, like Paul Ryan, right? Um, you know, the speaker used to have so much more power to reward yep. with, with earmarks, right. reward people, buy them off, basically, to punish people. He doesn't have it. Like, Paul Ryan looks really wimpy and weak, and but it's not necessarily just that Paul Ryan's a wuss. Maybe he is, but he also doesn't have half the power that Sam Rayburn had, or even Newt Gingrich. Yeah. I mean— you know, Newt Gingrich didn't have to deal with backbench congressmen who could go in front of 24-7 cable news cameras and tweet huh. things and have outside yeah. groups like the Club for Growth. And I love the Club for Growth, but outside groups giving them millions of dollars, you know. Yeah. Um, so anyway, this this is a long discussion, but I think you're on to something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we've definitely gone away from that sort of real politic uh, conception, and 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 I think we're starting to see even even when it comes to uh, uh, you know at attaching certain things on pol you know on policy to to get it through. Um, we've gone away from that, and I think it's not as practical, right, as it, it as it used to be, and so it's hard to get things done. Yeah, and you could say, okay, if you're a populist, you would say, um, these these politicians they don't need earmarks. Take away the earmark. That sounds like a populist, common sense thing to do, but there are unintended consequences. Now, yeah. it used to be like if you wanted to actually, I don't know, raise the debt limit or keep the government open, <laughs> you could buy off some congressmen. It was corrupt, yes, but like it got things done. Right. And, and, and now I think sometimes uh, – so what happens now is there's more gridlock um, and there's more obstruction. and we blame Paul Ryan and we blame Con you know, Mitch McConnell can't get anything done. Right. So it's the elite's fault. Again, so we have to take, yeah. let's take more power away from them. You know, yeah. so it becomes a, a catch 22, you know, you keep taking power away from them because they're inept and they look more and more inept. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And just one last follow up question. So I, I think you can look at movements as well, like, you know, Martin Luther King's uh, Poor People's Movement, which was like an aspirational uh, populism, right? Uh, kind of gathering people who, who were being underserved and, and, and had a lack of resources. What is the real? So let's replace what Bannon is doing. And if we could put in place the conservative answer to what's going on in some of these places where people have no jobs, no industry, 
and they're really suffering, even those who are in this opioid crisis. What is the conservative, real conservative response to that? Well, to be honest with you, I don't even, I have no idea what it is. Um, And I don't even know what conservative means means anymore. I have my definition. Look, here's what I think. I, I think that it's possible, entirely possible, that you could have some populist solutions. Remember, um, Rick Santorum, when he was running for president, he wanted to have special tax breaks for manufacturing, as an example. So if you're in Ohio, if you're, you know, so um, special tax breaks for, for manufacturing. And like, I don't know if that's a good policy or a bad policy, but that is a policy question. That's an economic question. And we could debate whether or not, you know, that's a, you know, is that bad because it's not free market? Is it bad because it's picking winners and losers? Like that's a legitimate policy debate. But yeah. what it's not is it's not based on playing the race card. It's not based on stoking division and, and anger. It's not based yeah. on scaring people about immigrants. And that is the part that, that's the element of the populist Bannon Trump uh, thing that bothers me the most. It's not, it's not like whether or not to have a protectionist tariff, right? right. <laughs> I mean, yeah. it's 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 the sort of the dark, um, unseemly stuff that I think is is really the most problematic. Yeah. So so Matt, I just want to. Uh, I think we're wrapping up here, but you write a lot of on on faith and how Christians engage in politics. And of course, uh, this this past uh, weekend was the Values Voter Summit and Sebastian Gorka and Steve Bannon spoke there and uh, 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 touched on a lot of the themes we've, we've talked about um, uh, already of how they've sort of defined uh, their takeover of the Republican Party. But of course, President Trump went and spoke there as well. And he... Um, it, it was it was really something of a of a of a victory lap, and you know, frankly, oddly, um, you know, a, a sort of coming coming home for him, which I think says a lot about the state of, of uh, you know, a gathering like the Values Voter Summit. He uh, told them that you know we are stopping cold the attacks on Judeo Christian values. He said that. Uh, you know, now we're saying Merry Christmas again, uh, uh, which was a return to his his campaign trail refrain. And then there were these odd lines, and I noticed these during the campaigns that, um, you know, were, were, were really standard family value speech filler, but that just sound kind of outrageous coming from President Trump. So, for instance, he'll say uh, he, he told the Values Voter Summit that, um uh, that he supported, including uh, increasing the child tax credit uh, and eliminating the marriage penalty uh, because, quote, we know that the American family is the true bedrock of American life, <laughs> um, which, you know, sounds one way coming from someone like Mitt Romney or George W. Bush. And, you know, I think should sound a little different coming from someone like Trump. And so um, I, I, were you able to uh catch President Trump's speech, uh, and what did you think of it? And just generally, um, what do you think about uh, the, the state of, particularly sort of the uh, the conservative 
white evangelical support for Trump and how that how that partnership is looking, you know, nine months into the Trump administration? Yeah, so I would say a few things. One, the the more I'm in this, the more I'm convinced that the conservative movement is decadent and depraved. <laughs> you know, um, there are some really great people in the conservative movement who are true believers. But I would say like half of the leader, at least half of the leaders, the self-appointed leaders are um, phonies. They're mm-hmm. not good actors. And that is that was a very eye opening and, and disturbing uh, revelation for me um, when I just it took me a long time to, to sort of discover that. Um, so I look, I, I think it's just I don't know what Tony Perkins or whoever, what they're thinking, like. You know, look, invite the president. I would invite the president. Right. I would have invited President Obama. Yeah. Um, but Sebastian Gorka and Steve mm. Bannon, no, no business being there. That's that's mm. an embarrassment. That's ridiculous. Mm. Uh, and, I like, and Matt, what do you? Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Uh, well, I like Eric Erickson. Uh, had a good, I think, column at Politico pointing that out. I would say yeah. this. I, I I would say this though sort of in defense or, or not even defense, but an explanation of, of this. Um, very clearly, the Christian conservative political world has decided we're, we've given up on having um, someone who is one of us. What we want is someone who will fight for us. Yep. And I do think when you look at the, some of the things that the left said, that are incredibly um, offensive and angry um, and evil in some cases. I would even say it. You sort of understand why they're why you, you know it takes two to have a culture war. You know it takes two yeah, to change. Right. Um, and you know, look, I'm not saying it's coming from people like. President Obama, sometimes it's just like a HuffPost blogger right. who, wants to, who wants to say something crazy on Twitter. But there are things that are said um, by people from the left that are so infuriating um, and triggering, <laughs> to, use, to yeah. use that term, that I think it, it has uh, sort of galvanized and radicalized people who used to be you know, compassionate conservatives. Churches ain't saving, they just decorating citizens. When the liquor stores your neighbor, you probably grow up a drunk. When the courts keep you from court, you probably learn to dump. Well, Justin, uh, well, we have been talking for a number of weeks about having a guest on who could discuss with us the current state and future of the Republican Party. And uh, I'm just so glad we were able to have Matt on. He brought so much wisdom. And, uh, and uh, I'm just grateful uh, for the conversation, I, I thought, I, I know I learned some things. Yeah, it was a solid conversation. And I hope that one thing we did was uh, kind of demonstrate how you can have a constructive conversation and civil conversation with people whom uh, you may disagree on some very significant matters. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, uh, folks, I, I would again encourage you uh, to check out Matt's book, Too Dumb to Fail. It really is, uh, I, I think, more relevant today than it was even when it came out. And so would urge you to check that out. You could always catch Matt 
on CNN and his column at the Daily Beast. And uh, again, we're grateful Matt, Matt came on and uh, he, he's uh, he's now a friend of the show and, and hopefully we'll have him on again. Uh, Justin, any any final words from you, brother? Hey, let's just move forward, Christians. Uh, stay in your Bible, stay prayerful and do what you can to make the discourse, our public discourse better. We will see you next week. I'm grooving for the activists and graduates. I'm an advocate for those feeling abandonment. In the favelas and slums of ghetto inhabitants, it's like, can anything good come out of Nazareth? The only thing good came out of Nazareth. This is the groove. Tell me, can yeah. I'm schooled in the ways of runaway slaves. I'm brave, I'm unchained, I'm Frederick Douglass with a fade. When tracking the domestic dust bunny, you commonly find them hiding under wardrobes next to lost socks. Don't move too suddenly or they'll scurry off. What's utterly fascinating about the dust bunny is that although they are not actually sentient creatures, when they hear that Geico not only saves people money, but also has a 97% customer satisfaction rating, it's obvious to them you should switch. Because yes, switching to Geico is a no-brainer. Oh no, it's the dust bunny's only natural predator. Run along, dust bunnies, run along. Napa know-how. At Napa Auto Care Centers, you'll get a $75 prepaid Visa card when you spend $250 on Napa brake parts, which is cause to celebrate. Because normally the sound of screeching brakes means your bank account's about to take a hit. But getting $75 back makes that hit not so bad. Quality parts installed by the pros. That's Napa know-how. Napa know-how. At participating Napa Auto Care Centers, exclusions apply. Offer ends 63019.